Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we are in uh, the early stages of our series of Does God Exist with John Clayton. We have been through six lessons, and uh, logically speaking, we would take on lesson seven today. I think I, I had mentioned that uh, we would begin talking about the nature of God with this week's lesson, but that will come next week in lesson eight. Lesson seven today, he pauses and deals with some of the objections that atheists have with the contention um, and the assertion that God created the universe or that the universe was created. And he uh, he, he tells us the angle uh, that uh, many times atheists will take in trying to disprove some of the things by attacking the Bible which has nothing to do with whether or not the universe was created. And so uh, he, he points that out and uh, covers uh, some things that we haven't talked about yet, but he also uh, repeats a couple of things that I think he wants to drive home with us that he has said before just it, because they are so fundamental to getting the argument straight before you get in too deeply. So we will uh, go ahead and begin. Uh, with Anticipating Some Objections, Lesson 7. Welcome to the seventh program in our Just God Exists video series. Our fundamental assumption in this discussion, our fundamental premise, is that science and faith are not adversaries. They're not opponents. They're not on a collision course. The notion that you have to decide whether to be a well-educated, logical, intelligent, thinking, scientific person or a stupid, ignorant, religious fanatic is not the choice that should be available to us. I maintain that science and faith are compatible disciplines. They support each other. They reinforce each other. They exist in a symbiotic relationship, each mutually beneficial to the other. This is not predominantly a philosophical discussion. We're looking at evidence. Our assumption is that there is reality, that we exist. I know there is value in discussions of the philosophical and theological nature about how we arrive at positions, and I'm not minimizing that in any way, but that's not my forte, that's not my background, that's not where we're coming from in these presentations. And the purpose of this particular presentation is to anticipate objections to what has been said in the six previous videos. This is important. One of the problems in presentations like this is we don't have a chance to interact. You know, when I'm teaching a class in the classroom, I can ask questions, I can receive questions, I can challenge students to repeat what I've said in some other form, but we can't very well do that here. You can email me, but that doesn't sometimes work quickly, at least. So I want to try and anticipate some of the kinds of questions that I have experienced in the 40-plus years that I've been doing these types of presentations, and some of the things that I think logically could be given to the things that we're talking about. 
We've made really one fundamental argument concerning the question of reality, and that is that it had a beginning. I quoted an old version of the Humanist Manifesto, which stated what I think are necessarily the atheist views on the things we're talking about. The first position in this discussion is that there was a beginning, as opposed to the view that I think most atheists would hold, that matter energy in some form or another is eternal in nature, that there was, in fact, a beginning, that matter energy is not eternal. And we're talking primarily about material related to the physical universe in which we live. We've also looked at the question of whether or not the beginning was caused. I think one of the reasons it's attractive to atheists not to admit that there was a beginning is because they don't have to deal with cause. But if we convince ourselves that there was a beginning, that the physical universe as we observe it, and even the quantum mechanical universe as we observe it, had a beginning, then the next logical flow in the discussion would be, well, then what caused that beginning? Was it caused, or is it, to use the words of the manifesto, self-existing, not caused? And we pointed out that from a scientific standpoint, to maintain something is not caused is to maintain that something can come from nothing. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about what nothing means, and as I have said to you, uh, you want something interesting, get on the web and search the word nothing and see what you get. You'll be amazed at how much there is on the web about nothing. But we've defined that in our terms as the existence of no time, no space, no matter energy, the absolute non-existence of any dimensional form of time, space, or matter energy. Now, the final discussion in this has been, all right, if the universe does exist, if there is reality, if we demonstrate it had a beginning, and we did that in our second presentation and third presentation, and if the beginning was caused, and we've talked about the necessity of that, then what has to be the nature of the cause? Now, there's actually several things that connect to this. The one that we have talked about so far is the question of whether there is intelligence, or whether we can logically, mathematically, scientifically believe that the cosmos is a product of blind, opportunistic, mechanistic chance. I've quoted Richard Dawkins a great deal in our presentation. He talked about the universe being a product of chance. We talked about Huxley. But one thing I'd like to point out to you is that we have not in these discussions been using any references to the Bible. Now, I am a Christian, and ultimately we will talk about the validity of the Christian system, the validity of the Bible concept of God, the validity of the Bible as a whole. But we're not using that in these discussions. In the first six presentations, there has been no dependence upon the Bible. The question is, is there anything out there without talking about what the nature of that thing has to be? What I'd like to call your attention to is the fact that when you look at most atheist arguments on the web, and there are enormous numbers of atheist sites, they're all biblically oriented. Look at this statement by Richard Dawkins. It's interesting that in the discussion, all of the things that he uses here are a demonstration of belief that the biblical concept is wrong. He's not talking about the existence of God. He's talking about the validity of the Bible. 
biblical concepts. And what's really interesting about that is that most of them demonstrate bad theology. Bad theology is, in my view, one of the major problems that atheists have. Most atheist discussions don't deal with the evidence for the existence of God. They deal with personal objections to what they understand the Bible to say. One of the problems is to assume that there is, in fact, a restriction on the methods that God can use. If there is a God, if he is as the Bible describes him, then that's an invalid assumption. We're not dealing with an old man in the sky that uses the principles we use to construct the creation as we see it. The other problem is that atheists almost universally, when they quote the Bible, do not take it literally. Now that may sound like a strange statement to you, but what do you mean by literally? It's interesting to me that most of the times when you read atheist quotes of the Bible, they're using the oldest version of the King James Bible known to man. I mean, they go all the way back to 1611. And it's interesting to realize that there are multiple problems with those ancient translations. What we maintain when we say to take the Bible literally is that the Bible has to be taken with an eye as to who wrote it, who they wrote it to, why they wrote it, and how the people of the day would have understood it. Now, let's take an example of that. Let me try to get you to see what I'm saying here. So Dawkins complains about God being presented as a jealous God. Where does he get that? Well, not from any scientific investigation. He's not talking about cosmology. He's not talking about materials related to the ontological argument. He's not talking about teleology. What he's talking about is his understanding of passages like Exodus 20 and verse 5. Now, as you look at this, it is pretty clear that the Bible is telling us that God is a jealous God. You can't miss that. But what does the word jealous mean here, and what is the context in which it is written? What is the purpose of the passage, and to whom is it written? Well, it's pretty obvious, even just looking at this verse. But he's not talking about the petty jealousy that a child would have. Oh, he's got a toy I don't have. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is infidelity. Suppose my wife was unfaithful to me. And I'm sure some of you have been through that experience. Would I be jealous? Yeah. Yeah, but it, it, it's not the petty jealousy I have when somebody has a better car than I have. It's the jealousy of being betrayed and the hurt that must go with having someone you have trusted and someone that you are one with breaking that relationship, defiling that relationship and bringing someone else into the relationship brings a level of pain I can't comprehend. And in this passage, God is portraying that concept to the Israelites. Notice the statement, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. He's talking about other gods. And I use the King James here because the quotations given by atheists are from the King James. But even in the King James, with its archaic language and sometimes problems with words, it's obvious he's not talking about petty jealousy. So suggesting God is a jealous God and leaving the impression that it's like a child that doesn't have a toy somebody else has is a complete misrepresentation 
literally of what the Bible is saying. Hector Abalas has used this statement. Hitler was a creationist. Well, okay, you know, you could have that opinion, but then look what he bases this on. He quotes Adolf Hitler in a speech that was given in 1942. And when Hitler says, my feelings as a Christian point me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter, how terrific was his fight against Jewish poison? Well, you can read the rest of it. Is this taking the Bible literally? Or is this bad theology? The answer to that is so obvious that I doubt it's necessary for me to belabor the point. Jesus dealt with matters in a completely different form than this. That is a gross abuse of what the Bible is attempting to say. It's not taking the Bible literally. You can go to many passages of the Bible where the Bible indicates Christians are neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither bond nor free. As stated in Galatians, as collected in, in Ephesians, there's numerous places where that kind of discussion is carried on. Another example of situations where we see atheists using the Bible instead of dealing with evidence is what Dawkins refers to as ethnic cleansing, what other writers have referred to as bloodshed, cruelty, well, all the words, genocide. So where does that come from? Well, one example would be 1 Samuel 15, 3 where God is talking to the Israelites about the Amalekites. And he tells the Israelites, now go and smite the Amalekites. And he tells them to completely destroy them, to spare nothing, not even the animals. Other passages talk about burning everything that is in the area. Well, is this a vindictive act, a petty, jealous God who is practicing genocide and all of these things that Dawkins mentions? Or was there a logical reason why, when you look at who they wrote it to, why it was written, how the people of the day would have understood it, and what the conditions were, that there was actually a reason why it had to be done? See, we're not dealing with 21st century Western civilizations. We're dealing with a very, very primitive time in man's existence. The history of the Amalekites is a, a horrible history. Many of their practices were very destructive. They drank blood. They practiced sexual acts of an incredible number of varieties, including bestiality. It is a matter of historical record that STDs were rampant in the culture. Now, the Israelites had been given a very strict moral code. There was no toleration of adultery. There was no promiscuity. There was nothing allowed that would have allowed for or caused the massive spread of disease. You know, we have a very similar situation in Africa today with HIV. How do we stop the spread of HIV? Well, one of the problems there is controlling the moral practices of the people that live in the cultures that are being affected. Hopefully, we'll find a way to control those diseases, reduce the horrible rate at which HIV is present among children and the terrible death rate that is present. But what was God going to do with the Israelites? They had no such provision for this. This is a primitive culture. This is an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, very primitive situation. You know, most viruses are contracted in man from animals. The 
spread of all of the different STDs that we are familiar with of our culture is facilitated by practices contrary to what the Bible tells us to do in a moral sense. Yes, it's unpleasant. Yes, it's detestable. But I don't think there was any alternative here. It was necessary to completely sterilize the area in order to avoid the spread of all the things that were present in the Amalekite population. When you look at who wrote it, who they wrote it to, why they wrote it, how the people of the day would have understood it, what the circumstances were, there's a fairly easily explanation. So statements like this are biblically based. And again, my purpose in this is to simply say to you, we have not involved the Bible in our discussion. But when you listen to the atheists, when you look at atheist websites, when you read the books written by professional atheists like Dawkins, what you see is their objections are almost completely and totally biblically based. Now, it is true that other religious systems do not fall into this category. In the Quran, in Surah 9, 122-125, you have a circumstance that is very different than what you see in the Bible. Other passages in the Quran make very similar statements. Some of my Muslim friends will tell you that these are philosophical battles, that they are ideological battles. But obviously, that has not been the way in which many Muslims have interpreted it. And bin Laden and all the things that have flown from September 11th have made that clear to us. And many, many Muslims would not agree with what the interpretation is of these passages on the level of war and jihad. But compare that with statements like this. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in what Christianity follows, do we see any admonition of this type? And what we see is the complete opposite of this. Christians are called to be peacemakers. Christians are called to reject the old concept of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Christians are encouraged to turn the other cheek, to go the second mile. We are told not to return evil for evil, but love our enemies. Sometimes that teaching is very, very difficult. But the fact of the matter is that nothing in the Christian system promotes the kind of things that are being attributed to the Bible. And because many atheists do not apparently understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, statements are taken out of context from the Old Testament and applied to the Christian system. This is the complete opposite of what we are doing in these presentations. Let's go back now to our definition of science, which we had in the very first presentation. Notice in this definition that science involves observation. It involves experimentation. There has to be some way of falsifying whatever the area is that you are describing. And it has to be able then to be tested. Now one of the things we talked about in our presentation number five is, uh, five and six actually, but especially number six, is that when you start looking at statistical analysis of the probabilities of chance being a viable mechanism, you run into some incredibly difficult problems mathematically, statistically. Now, for example, here's a list of factors, the type of galaxy, and we discussed this. If you did not watch the sixth video, you need to go back and take a look at it so you know exactly what I'm talking about here. We talked about the type of galaxy in which we live. Is it a spiral galaxy? Is it an elliptic galaxy? 
where we are in the galaxy. The location is critical. A galactic habitable zone is a necessary part of the discussion. What type of star is the system orbiting? Is it a red giant star? Is it a blue star? Is it a G2 star like our sun? What kind of star is it? How far are we from it? What's the size of the planet? What type of orbit is it? Is it an elliptical orbit or a circular orbit? Has it got a high eccentricity or a low eccentricity? Does it have a magnetic field? What's the structure of the atmosphere? Is it near a black hole? And we chose certain variables, and I just picked out a handful of them here. And we pointed out that in statistics, when you have multiple variables like this, what you do is to multiply the independent variables to get the total. So the odds, if you accepted these numbers that I have on the screen right now, the odds of all of them being right would be found by multiplying 1 over 100 by 1 over 100 by 1 over 100 by 1 over 100, etc. And you would end up with 1 in, and then you can see the great big number there. Now, one of the things that happens here is somebody says, well, yeah, but it doesn't matter what the numbers are. If the universe is big enough, then it's going to happen. That's a valid point. It's an important point. No matter what the odds are, you know, if, going back to my deck of cards thing, if you draw once out of a deck of cards, the odds of getting the ace of spades is one out of 52. But what if you drew 52 times? Well, then the odds are pretty good, aren't they? Somewhere along the line, you're going to draw the ace of spades. So is it reasonable to say that all statistical approaches to probability are invalid because somewhere or another you have an infinite number of possibilities? I want to remind you of something. When we started that probability discussion, we said, all right, we're going to make an assumption here that the universe began with the Big Bang. We're assuming the beginning. That, that assumption is based upon a considerable amount of evidence. All of the evidence for the Big Bang supports that concept. Now, let's just make it easy here. Let's suppose we say that this Big Bang happened 100 billion years ago. Now, I, you say, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody takes that position. I know, but I'm, I'm trying to pick numbers so that your attention will be diverted from the numbers and saying I exaggerated them to picking numbers I'm sure nobody will complain about. So let's say it happened 100 billion years ago. What are the, what's the possible maximum number of stars that could exist if the Big Bang happened 100 billion years ago? All right, let's take a look at the visual here. Now, what I have diagrammed here is the motion of the galaxies. You'll notice in the lower left-hand corner that that's where the system is moving from. And everything is moving out away from that system. If the Big Bang happened 100 billion years ago, then the outer edge of that system is 100 billion light years from the point of origin. So that curved line there is the limit of the cosmos. If you could stand to the right of that curved line and look back, you could watch the Big Bang happen. Now, I know there's, there's all kinds of versions of the Big Bang here, and you can talk about, well, it wasn't all in one point. That's, that's a discussion that you can get into, but that's not the point of this discussion. The point is that there is a limit to the universe. And you could calculate the volume of known space by simply taking the formula for a volume of a sphere and putting 100 billion in for the radius. The formula for the volume of a sphere is 4 thirds pi r cubed. The 100 billion is 10 to the 10th. 
So you'll notice in the upper right-hand corner, we have 4 thirds of pi times 10 to the 10th cubed. And that gives us a number of 4.19 times 10 to the 30th cubic light years. That's the maximum size of the cosmos, assuming that it began with the Big Bang 100 billion years ago. Now, you know, it, it, nobody thinks it was that old, so that number is way bigger than it would need to be. And you can enter into all kinds of discussions about what's on the other side, Well, what's to the right of the curved line. We'll talk about that in a moment. But how many stars can you fit in there? Well, in the middle of the diagram, I have a little rough calculation of the volume of a galaxy. And I've used our galaxy as a standard. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years in diameter. That means it's 50,000 light years in radius. So if we were to assume it's a sphere, which it isn't, but if you were to assume it's a sphere, then the volume would be 4 thirds pi r cubed again, and r would be 50,000. And that gives you, as you can see, 5.2 times 10 to the 14th cubic light years. So how many of those galaxies could you fit in to the volume of space? If the volume of space is 4.19 times 10 to the 30th cubic light years, if each galaxy were 5.2 times 10 to the 14th, how many could you fit? Well, you divide those two numbers, and as you can see, you come up with a possible number of galaxies that tend to the 16th. Now, by the way, I want you to notice here that we've assumed things that all work against what we're saying. Our galaxy is unusually large. Most galaxies are not that large. Our galaxy is enormously far away from the next galaxy. So we're assuming no space between galaxies. That's not valid. So, you know, th these numbers are all working at maximums. How many stars are there in a galaxy? Well, our galaxy is estimated to have 100 billion. That's 10 to the 10th. So if you multiply the number of stars in a galaxy by the possible number of galaxies, you get the maximum number of stars. And you can see the number there, 10 to the 26th. Now, I want, I want to point out to you, that's maximums. <laughs> that's maximums. You can do this calculation in a variety of different ways. You can be more sophisticated. You can use you know, all kinds of, of different mathematical formulas for the shapes that are involved. But you're still going to end up with numbers less than that. Certainly nothing much beyond it. The probabilities we're talking about are nowhere near that. There's a box in the lower part of the diagram. Each of those numbers in that box is from a different source on a different probability. So the 10 to the 700th power is a calculation that came out of biologists' work talking about the probabilities of moving from amino acids to DNA. The 10 to the 243rd is Murray Eden's calculation in his article, Heresy in the Halls of Darwinism, coming out of MIT. And that's a, a very old document, but that's the number he came up with. The other two come from similar types of sources. The, the, the point is, the maximum number of stars is in the realm of 10 to the 26. The probabilities are in the hundreds in all cases. Bottom line, the universe isn't big enough to argue that it's going to happen necessarily if you have enough time and enough space. You don't have infinite time. If the Big Bang happened 100 billion years ago, that limits your time. And you don't have infinite space. Now, I'm not saying anything here that people aren't aware of, and you may have heard this, and you may have heard the way of getting around it. The way of getting around it is to suggest that maybe there's many verses, multiverse, multi-universes, 
in the discussion. You know, it's interesting that one of the most famous atheists in the 20th century was Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew was a philosopher and made all kinds of arguments against the concept of God. And then when he started looking at the question of the origin of life, he realized that the evidence just simply didn't support the philosophical views that he held. His last book was titled, There is a God, and was rooted in this particular question of probabilities. Now, there's one more way that atheists anticipate this and answer it. And they will say, well, maybe there's multiverses. Maybe the cosmos as we see it is only one of many possible universes. Well, that's interesting. If you had, going back to this picture, if you had a universe at position A and at position B and position C, not galaxies, but universes, then all of a sudden the number of places in space becomes infinite. At first glance, that may sound like a pretty good argument. May I first of all suggest to you that it's not really a scientific argument. How do you test it? How do you conduct an experiment to see if it's true or not? How do you falsify it? But even disregarding that, let me point out to you another factor involved in the statistical analysis, and that is it doesn't do any good to have the first event in position A, the second event in position B, the third event in position C. If these are in different universes, that does nothing. All of the things necessary to produce matter, to produce life, have to occur in the same place at the same time. So suggesting multiple universes doesn't answer the statistical question about which we're talking. The final point I want to make here is that most of the atheist discussions in these areas, most of the challenges given in these areas, again, go back to sources that have nothing to do with science. And I particularly call your attention to Richard Dawkins' book, River Out of Eden. First of all, he makes the, the this atheist statement we have been functioning on. He says the universe is blind forces. Everything is the result of chance. They first of all say that, but then notice where he ends up in this discussion. He not only says there's no design and no purpose, but he says there's no evil. He says there's no good. One of the other challenges atheists give is, well, if, if there is a God, and especially if it's this Christian God you talk about, who is a God of love and compassion and kindness and all that stuff, then how do you explain the tragedies of life? The pain, the suffering, all of the horrible things that happen, earthquakes, tsunamis. Well, if there is no evil, then you have no answer. If there is no purpose to our existence, then you have no answer. I think biblically we can give an answer to that. I think that answer can be given in terms of the concept of a God. But if survival of the fittest is all there is that is functioning, if the statement that you see in Dawkins' statement here is the only guide given to us, then yeah, it's a se severe question. And in our later videos, we'll talk about why do we exist. We'll talk about human suffering. But first of all, we have one more area we need to talk about, and that is what is the nature of God? What is God? What is God? Not who is God. What is God? And that will be our next discussion. Well, once again, uh, Clayton does a very good job of, of um, using numbers to make his argument. 
and if you are like I am, um, I get lost in those numbers and I forget his point at times until he comes back and reiterates what his point is by showing us um, what these numbers mean and what they say and how they are relevant to the uh, argument at hand. Um, I find it interesting uh, that the point, one of the points that he makes early on and comes back and revisits at the end is that uh, when, <clears throat> by and large, when atheists um, attack the existence of God as the source of things or that he even exists at all, that they go to <clears throat> attacking the Bible and they try to use scripture against um, those who believe in it. And um, what that does, as he says, it, it totally ignores the scientific side of their arguments, uh, which he does a very good job at, at showing, if not, <coughs> you know, if not disproving them, showing they have major flaws um, in, in their logic and in their, in their conclusions. It's kind of funny that they jump out of their wheelhouse and into ours to disprove something that right. we prove. <laughs> um, and I, I want, he makes a point uh, that he had made in an earlier session as well. <clears throat> this notion of when you read the Bible, you have to read it with a sense of context. You have to know who he's writing to. You have to know what the circumstances were. Uh, you have to understand how they would have interpreted uh, that uh, Th those statements there and you have to know who is talking uh, at that time and everything uh, we have all heard that you can prove almost anything uh, from the, by lifting passages here and there from the Bible uh, and I guess that is probably true <clears throat> I've never tested that that assertion um, but I do know that people lift things out of context all the time and we as as Christians and 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 devout believers in the Bible must be diligent to make sure that we, just out of maybe what we have heard all our lives or uh, assumed to be the case, that we aren't doing the same thing. So I would just encourage everyone to, uh, to look at context whenever you try to figure out what um, Scripture is saying about something. Um, second point I was going to make was that, that idea of, of, of dissing God restricting God according to what man knows about man, not what man knows about God. And their attacks on God are based, <clears throat> obviously, from a, a human standpoint. Uh, why would that be the case? How could a God who is, is just and merciful and good um, author or allow things of this nature uh, to, to take place that are, that are so horrible? Um, it just seems inconsistent. Well, he will talk about that, and we're not going to get into an explanation of that um, at this point. <clears throat> he did mention this this notion of of cleansing, uh, this sterilizing the area with the Amalekites. Um, when I moved from uh, Mississippi up to uh, Kentucky, and uh, went to I think it was maybe the first congregation that I picked to uh, attend. It was at the beginning of the of the school year, uh, in the fall, 
uh, university year, and uh, they had invited one of the parents of one of the students who was returning or just starting there to speak that night, that Sunday night. <clears throat> and he gave one of the less, best lessons I have ever heard in my life. And one of the things that he did in that lesson, really the, his whole lesson was using the Amalekites as a metaphor for sin. It seemed that whenever the Israelites did not wipe them out the way um, that they were directed to, um, it was comparable to not getting rid of the sin that caused them to be unfaithful to their God. And so he used the, the Amalekites themselves as a metaphor for sin. And I thought it was a really uh, neat idea, and it was, it, was, it was spot on as far as not following God's will, not getting rid of the influences in your life that keep you from, from being faithful to him. Um, and I thought, well, why stop with Amalekites? Mm, he did a bigger one than that with the flood. Um, all part of making sure that his people had the best chance that they had to be faithful to him. You can't read uh, Genesis 6. The flood, yeah. 5, 6, and 7. I think it's either 6 or 7 there about how evil mankind was at that time. It's in superlative after superlative after superlative. And I can't imagine man being that evil, but it's, you know, Moses was recording this at, uh, uh, from, from a later standpoint, from an inspired standpoint, about what God had directed him to write about this, um, this time period. So those those are a couple of things that I that I wanted to point out. And the other thing is this: um, he also uh, stressed this idea that uh, Christianity is different. There is a book called um, "The Man of Galilee," and I don't know if you can can see that to get it pretty close. Okay, <laughs> uh, "The Man of Galilee." There, it's by Atticus Haygood. And uh, ran across this book uh, several years ago, and what what he contends, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm pointing out the right book from my my digital library here, um, is that for man to come up with this story, this marvelous, wonderful story about a God creating a universe, creating mankind going through all of the stories of the Old Testament and into the New Testament about how man and and the people of God had, had sinned and separated themselves from God. And so God had to send his son from heaven to, uh, to restore man to God. And then focus on the teachings of Christ. This concept of an individual who had no predecessor was totally atypical to anything the Jews ever knew or could have even conceived. Most of us, when we write about things and when authors write about things, they write about things at least as a foundation from which they are familiar or with which they are familiar. Their imagination can go, yes, and you can create characters, fantastical characters in your mind, but uh, one of his points is is for uh, the apostles 
to uh, create this individual in their minds was pretty much inconceivable for a first century Jew. The consistency of the Old Testament and those types that we've talked about in these lessons, previous lessons prior to this, uh, does God exist, um, all point to a, a theme that is consistent, a story, if you want to call it that, that is as solid as it can be from the standpoint of, of meaning and purpose and um, evidence that we, that we see um, of science matching Scripture. So our world of, of, of reality that we live in is consistent with the Bible story, with what we see with science. What he is telling us um, can only be the answer for how we came to be and how our universe uh, came into existence. I talked a lot. Would you like to say something? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I put the link to the book you just mentioned on the Facebook page so you guys can click on that link and it'll take you to the Amazon page for that for that book. It It is a fascinating uh, approach for ex external evidence for uh, the fact that Jesus... Were you going to say more? Uh, just more book recommendations. <laughs> okay. Uh, ApologeticsPress.org has put out a couple of books on alleged contradictions in Scripture. I think they got two or three volumes, and you can go back and find those on their websites. It's ApologeticsPress.org. They do a lot of the same kind of stuff that John Clayton's doing. They just don't do it in video form. So if you'd rather have written out, uh, they're a pretty good resource for that as well. Um, one of the uh, major arguments against the Bible is uh, its flaws its inconsistencies and um, you look at it right it's actually the best <laughs> proponent of for for uh, it being inspired Ab absolutely and um, many times as uh, Clayton suggests those those statements those uh, mistakes those flaws those inconsistencies are taken out of out of context and you you would have to take each one of those uh, to talk about that mm -hmm. um, to to work that out um, I ran across uh, an article uh, this week, and while I don't like to uh, read to people in a class, of course, this is totally different than, you read to <laughs> than what we're bit. used to, um, but, and, and I know people generally don't like to be read to, but uh, this, this is an article uh, by John MacArthur. You have maybe seen uh, him in the news lately. He has a, a church and is... is um, well published on uh, biblical top uh, topics, we used his book um, on the apostles, the twelve apostles, when we uh, when we studied that back about three topics ago. Uh, here, I don't agree uh, with uh, everything John MacArthur teaches about what the Bible, uh, uh, what he says the Bible teaches. Um, disagree with him on a number of things, but um, the man. Um, is very good at, at communicating and communicating in a way uh, that is very effective. I have stressed occasionally lately how our challenge as Christians is going to increase. We are going to, because of the way the world is headed, and I hate to be a, you know, the sky is falling type person, but everything that I can see um, suggests that, that uh, respect for God's Word is uh, becoming um, less and less uh, in the public sphere, uh, in politics, in government, in decision-making, um, 
everywhere. And so we as believers in that word have to be twice as diligent as believers in previous decades have had to be. Our culture has been a, a culture that supports religion, supports uh, belief in, in God's word. And I don't know what the percentages are nowadays, but I do know that they are going down uh, for those who believe, A, in a God, B, that the Bible uh, tells us of that God, and uh, C, that, that it is indeed God's word and we can use it to uh, determine what we do in our lives uh, and in our worship. Um, so, MacArthur, uh, this was uh, published our, uh, August 27th, 2020, and it's called Losing Our Religion. Faith is on the decline nowadays, and it's no wonder. Most people in these postmodern times are convinced that it's impossible to know anything with settled certainty, so they can't really believe anything either. When you aren't even sure whether objective truth exists, and some claim that, by the way, the suggestion that there is something to believe in simply doesn't make sense. Begin with the assumption that nothing can be known for sure, and religious convictions are automatically out of the question. If you, if you have the basic assumption that we really can't know anything for sure, there is no absolute truth, then believing in something like religion uh, just cannot be. Uh, it won't work. In case you hadn't realized it, that kind of thinking now dominates our society. The concept of settled, noble truth is widely considered intellectually inept and politically incorrect. There's my truth and your truth, meaning everything is ultimately just a matter of perspective. In other words, truth claims are really nothing more than just personal opinions, and they deserve to be treated that way. Every point of view, no matter how bizarre, demands equal respect, because after all, no one can say for sure what is ultimately true. So how did we get here? This is the wreckage of a post-structural epistemology. Fancy words, let's hope he explains, where all texts must be deconstructed. Any spiritual precept or article of faith must be met with an unyielding skepticism. Approach it with skepticism. Certainty is deemed the very height of arrogance. Feelings count more than facts. And common sense, moral values, even knowledge itself, are scorned as relics of a more naive epoch of human history. There is zero tolerance for religious faith in a climate like that. Western society was built on beliefs that are rooted in Scripture, starting with the truth that God exists and has made himself known. The whole weight of the United States Declaration of Independence hangs on truths about God and his creation that our nation's founding fathers regarded as obvious, self-evident. They were right about that. All creation is filled with important real realities um, that are self-evident, axiomatic, beginning with the very foundation of all truth. The Bible says some basic knowledge of God is innate in every human heart, and this passage is one that, uh, probably about the only one I think that Clayton has used to this point. That which is known about God is evident within 
them. Romans 1.19. Furthermore, God constantly displays his glory through creation in a way that is hard to miss. Whether you study the vastness of the universe or examine a single drop of pond water through a microscope, microscope, you see ample evidence of God's infinite power, wisdom, creativity, and a host of other attributes. These truths, precisely the kind of ultimate objective realities the postmodern mind rejects, are purposely built into all creation at every conceivable level. Scripture goes on to say, God has made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that those who, believe, who disbelieve are without excuse. Also in Romans 1. Humanity's problem is that because of our sin, we resist accountability to God. And we have talked about that in here as well. One of the things that people don't like about being held accountable to the Bible is it restricts their personal freedom. So, we suppress that innate knowledge and ignore or try to explain away what is literally spread across the universe in all of its resplendence before our eyes. Because fallen minds refuse to see what is obvious, they lose the ability to make sense of anything. Romans 1, a few more verses. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. I've been quoting, of course, from the opening chapter of the Apostle Paul's uh, Epistle to the Romans. He goes on to chronicle a pattern of decline that has been repeated in cycles throughout human history. It is a descent into sin and depravity that has brought down every one of history's most powerful empires and currently threatens our civilization. It is a path that goes from unbelief to complete intellectual futility and it drags whole societies through idolatry, uncontrolled lusts, degrading passions, and every conceivable expression of unrighteousness. The end result is, verse 28, a depraved mind, a soul utterly given over to wickedness, irrationality, and contempt for everything that is truly righteous. In an act of divine judgment, God withdraws his grace and allows an individual or an entire culture to reach that point of moral and spiritual insanity. Here's how the apostle says it. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of uh, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's an interesting one there, isn't it? Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So even though you may not be doing those things, if you give hearty approval to them, you might as well be doing them, according to Paul. 
same outcome. We have literally watched this played out in living color with Jerry Springer narrating as our culture has sped down the exact path of spiritual decline Paul outlines in that chapter Hollywood, hip-hop, shock radio, and a host of other pop culture, uh, pop culture obsessions helped by the mainstream media and the secular academy have indoctrinated recent generations to accept and even encourage every imaginable kind of depravity and radical alternative lifestyle, end quotes. We're not supposed to notice the overtly self-destructive nature of popular moral deviances or the aberrant sculptures, subcultures, excuse me, they spawn. Anyone who is still offended or appalled by such things is considered ignorant or ill-bred. Our mainstream media have displayed a stubborn determination to advance and encourage the moral meltdown. They will, for example, portray months of lawlessness and writing and legitimate expressions of, fee of speech, insisting that it has been mostly peaceful, even though the destructive result is clearly evident to anyone with eyes to see. Meanwhile, nothing is more politically incorrect than religious belief. Genuine faith in God is commonly represented as a dangerous, disqualifying disorder. We're sick. Just this week, for example, former UN Ambassador Susan Rice, speaking live on a national news network, suggested that Secretary of Mike Pompeo does not qualify to serve in public office because he is, quote, overtly religious, which in itself is problematic, unquote. Governmental response to the corona pan, uh, coronavirus pandemic offers more stunning examples of how far our culture has gone in losing its religion. States and counties across the nation have classified places like casinos, abortion clinics, liquor stores, massage parlors as essential businesses permitting them to remain open while churches are commonly categorized as non-essential and kept closed. And that's where MacArthur has, has been in the news. They have tried to keep his church uh, closed. The governor of California and county officials in Los Angeles have shown a determination to keep our church closed, even while encouraging massive political protests by angry people in the streets. Although public discourse today is full of cries for justice and structural change, there is simply no way to affirm any coherent standard of justice much less is there any hope of change for the better, apart from a sweeping return to the God of Scripture, who is the source of all truth. We desperately need a generation of men and women who will open their eyes to that reality, turn from the unbelief and cold skepticism that define our culture, and flee from mercy to the God they have spurned. The good news is that God does offer full and free forgiveness and abundant blessing for those who will heed the call of Jesus Christ and come to him in repentant faith. So, again, I apologize uh, for reading uh, all the way through that, but he makes some very valid points, and he is living some of those points uh, because of the discrimination on the West Coast, but it is everywhere. It seems to, be, seems to thrive on the West Coast. Um, and seems to be the uh, starting point for a lot of the antagonism toward scripture and toward religion. Um, but he is, he is living that out there, and the gross inconsistencies 
um, that our government and that our leaders um, demonstrate in some of their policies um, show that we are certainly headed in a, a wrong direction. And we could spend time uh, giving you multiple examples of that. You can go to the Internet and find those um, yourself. But um, what he does there is um, call to us as Christians to be firm, to be steady, to resist the temptation to cave into political correctness and the uh, slanders that people will use simply because you believe in a God and the God of the Bible and that you are ignorant and that you are uh, unlearned and um, foolish. You're a fool for following something um, of that nature. So I would encourage all of us to be diligent, be strong, um, be brave in the face of those who would uh, deny that your faith is real or that your faith has any substance to it at all. We are down to the last minute or two, and uh, Chris told me we're using some software that uh, cuts us off uh, at one hour. So um, we'll just encourage you. Did you want to say anything else before we close? I encourage you to, um, to tune in next week. Uh, I promise I won't read to you. Um, and I promise Clayton will talk to us about uh, this God that, um, that um, atheists deny exists. So from now on, just very quickly, uh, you'll be able to watch this lesson on Facebook, YouTube, and on our phone call system uh, at 4 o'clock. Simultaneously, you won't have to wait for me to upload the, uh, uh, the lessons. So be aware of that if, you'd like. if you prefer watching it on YouTube or on the phone call system. You can do that as well as right here on Facebook at 4 o'clock. See you guys. Thank you. See you next week.